Welcome to our uh, Gateway fan cast. Welcome to the Gateway guys. Mike and I have actually been speaking in a hemi-sync set of tones. It's very important that you hear me in your right ear. If you do not hear me in your right ear, turn your headphones around now. (laughs) Bust out that big-ass energy conversion box. Chuck all the shit inside and slam it closed. You don't need any of that. Bye, Mom. Bye, Dad. (laughs) So that's been our episode about the Gateway Experience. See if you can figure it out. There are several clues. This mind is constantly attacked. Secret Mystery Club with Mike and Jeremy. Go back there and pick up some of that dirt and worship that you want to. That's what life is, life is, life is. I'm going to talk about how I encountered this, which was on the TikTok. Before TikTok really knew anything about me, I was just getting all these videos that I had absolutely no interest in. But they definitely figured it out because I started getting videos about something called the Gateway Experience. People were talking about a declassified CIA document detailing methods for initiating out-of-body experiences and or astral travel at will using this binaural beats hemi-sync technology. So I thought that sounded pretty fucking trippy. Mm -hmm. Some people were claiming to have interesting experiences, not necessarily full out-of-body experiences, but interesting experiences just after a few tapes. So I started digging into it. I wanted to figure out what it was. I was initially extremely skeptical that it even was a thing and not just something someone said. Because there's a lot of weird shit on TikTok. That's just not true. So I Googled it. And there's the document hosted on CIA.gov. Pretty easy to verify that the CIA has this document in their possession. And the document itself is from the 80s or something. June 1983. Yeah. So I started reading it, and it's one of the trippiest things I have read. Definitely the trippiest declassified CIA document I've read. Even the Stargate stuff, I think, is less weird. MKUltra, I think, is less weird. (laughs) Not only is this document talking about methods for achieving out-of-body experiences, but it's also telling you what this reveals about how consciousness works. And how the universe is holographic and space-time has like a torus shape. And you can leave your sense of being embodied in this relative sphere of existence and make contact with the absolute outside of space-time. Just all kinds of really wild stuff, including, you know, remote viewing and... It's only like, what, 26 pages long? Yeah, 29. I believe there's one page missing. Oh, if there's a page missing, that's going to drive me insane. Like, what's on that page? Yeah, 25. Okay, it's page 25. Page 24 ends in mid-sentence. So there is a missing page for sure. The rumor on the social media is that page once existed and was removed from the document as the final test. If you are able to transcend a limited space-time <laughs> mode of consciousness, you can go back in time and read that page. And congratulations, you passed. I have to find this page. The last bullet point that we see before the great blank spot 
is belief system considerations where it talks about how this whole thing ties into various religions. Like even the Christian concept of the Trinity shines through the description of the absolute as presented in this paper. It ends mid-sentence while describing the eternal thought or concept of self which results from this self-consciousness serves the... Yes, where the page is missing and what they were talking about leading into it is fascinating. The next page picks up on motivational aspects. So it's just kind of back to this like practical doing these things. Yeah. And at the beginning, it does talk about like, oh, I'm going to try to avoid anything too like occulty because if this thing seems too weird, people might not be into it. But you kind of can't separate it from like religious slash spiritual stuff. So the fact that it cuts out in the middle of that and then goes straight back into the like day to day. What could be on that page? I would love to find out, though. So the document itself, although it is contained within the CIA reading room archives, it's an army document. This is prepared by Wayne McDonnell for the army as an assessment of this classified program that's going on in the CIA. So that's why up top above the summary letter, it says subject is analysis and assessment of gateway process. Mm. So this is him trying to be as scientific about this as possible, I guess, while also talking about this wild fucking thing. So there's a lot of like trying to connect this to different theories. Like he starts comparing it with like biofeedback and hypnosis and transcendental meditation and shit like that. But for someone trying to be real science about it, it is big science. It is like fundamental nature of the universe science. So, you know, (laughs) I'm up for trying it out. It's natty. It's not giving you a weird pill and saying, take this pill and see what happens, right? This is saying this is something that your brain is capable of doing or your consciousness is capable of doing or whatever is happening here that you can do by listening to these tapes. So I got the tapes, obviously not as tapes, because I don't have an audio cassette player because it's not the 90s. Right. We acquired the audio, and I did the first four, like, half-hour tapes in my trying to figure out how to actually do this effectively, because the tapes are there to be part of the exercises, and they're, like, formal, guided exercises. They bring people in to train them to be psychic warriors for U.S. intelligence or whatever. They play these tapes, and because I'm not there, I don't know the other stuff that's going on around it, you know? It's like ancient Egyptian. I'm missing the vowels. I'm missing a lot of context for this. But in seeking context from hemi-sync documents and people that have been researching this themselves... You are supposed to lie down, I guess. So I did the first two wrong. I was sitting up. I found a document that said you're encouraged to repeat these as often as you need before you move on. So I'm probably going to be repeating wave one quite a bit. The thing I think I'm most interested in right now is what is your reaction to all this? I had like just encountered it and just did the Google search and saw the CIA document. And so I started just being like, yo, this is a real thing. Check this out. What's your reaction to this as you started digging into the materials? So when you first were telling me about it, yeah, I was a little put off. I was like, I don't know about this. But then, yeah, I started looking into it a little bit more. 
And it seemed like the fact that you said it was actually hosted on the CIA website. I'm like, well, these guys, like they may be kind of like doofuses, but they're working on something that is potentially real. So I found it intriguing. But like, yeah, I thought it was kind of crazy at first. I still think it's kind of crazy. But now that I've done a couple of them, I'm like, if nothing else, these exercises help me feel relaxed in a way that I haven't really experienced. So even if the only thing I end up getting out of it, even if I take it to the end and all I get out of it is I have a little half hour meditation I can do to feel refreshed in the middle of the day, I'll be happy with that. Mm. But the fact that I've already had some positive results, nothing that I would call supernatural or otherworldly or anything, like I'm excited to see where it goes at the very least. Yeah, like I haven't experienced nothing Right. Like I was kind of dismissive of my results so far, even though I've only done the first few. And like in the first few, it's just kind of laying the groundwork. Mm-hmm. It's like a gradually unfolding thing as you improve these skills. So I'm still learning the basic, like how to clean your rifle, essentially, yeah. part of this. But yeah, I mean, I had a strong sense of a presence in the room right next to me. Uh, the way that your thinking shifts as you approach sleepiness, but also how lucid you actually are. Like, you know, we all have this experience of like you're falling asleep and maybe you catch yourself and wake up a little bit and you're like, wait a minute, none of those thoughts made any sense. Yeah. But, you know, there were moments where my, you know, thoughts and sense of body and sense of sensation was starting to get a little loopy and liquid. But I felt like the part of that just watches was just watching it pretty lucidly. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, there was. Let me see if I documented it. Toward the end, I began to feel a strange weightlessness as if I were flying. I also felt almost as if I were spinning very quickly, but I wasn't getting dizzy or disoriented at all. Uh, I came out of it totally refreshed and feeling alert. Looking forward to what comes next. So yeah, I got, I remember getting this sense of like, okay, I feel like I'm kind of like floating weightlessly in some like vast empty space. Like this is interesting. This is strange. And then I don't even know how to describe how it came on, but it either felt like I was spinning really fast or something was like swirling around me really, really quickly. And I just sort of remember acknowledging, oh, this is an interesting sensation. I wonder what this is about. You know, like when you are catching yourself falling asleep and you get that moment of like, and it's almost like pulling yourself up out of something or like waking with a start sometimes. Yeah. It felt like a moment where that normally would have happened, but I was alert and able to just acknowledge, oh, interesting. I'm feeling a bizarre sensation that does not match up with like what I know to be physically happening with my body. But instead of, this isn't right, gotta fix, it was, let's see where this goes. Yeah. There is something called the Gateway Workbook. Have you looked at this? Page 11 shows a person surrounded by a swirling energy that looks exactly like what I was experiencing when I did this exercise yesterday. Like this visualization of a person with just spinning arrows rotating all around them. But I wasn't told to visualize energy swirling around me. It just sort of happened. And I could, like I said, I couldn't tell if it was me spinning or something swirling around me. I also wonder if you maybe had a similar experience to me both times. So just to describe for people who haven't tried it, there's sort of 
breathing exercises and, and like some vocalizations that you do to get to this state that the, the program calls focus three, where it, it, and this terminology doesn't super make sense to me, but it says that your mind and brain are in perfect sync, but it's supposed to be this state of extreme focus and clarity kind of thing. Both times for both of the exercises, when it was like, you are now in focus three, enjoy. And he goes to go silent for a couple minutes to just like let you luxuriate in focus three, I guess. The first time I did it, I was sitting there and I had my legs stretched out. And then I had the distinct sensation of like, there's a bug crawling up my leg. So I like started and looked down and there was nothing. I'm like, okay, maybe there was a bug. Like, who knows? Like, it could just be gone. (laughs) But then yesterday when I was doing the second CD... Is like, okay, you're in focus three, enjoy. The second tape is about achieving a state where your body is supposed to be physically asleep while your mind is still awake and aware, which I know is sort of the recipe for sleep paralysis. And so I started when I was in focus three, it's like, okay, the next phase once we get past this is going to be putting yourself into intentional sleep paralysis. That's scary. And I started having thoughts of like entities that I feel like I've like experienced or seen while I've had sleep paralysis. Yeah. Which thankfully does not happen to me nearly as often as it used to. And then I got like the distinct notion in my head that some scary entity was crawling up the bed toward me. And it was during the same phase as last time where I had the idea of there's a bug crawling up my leg. Only this time it was, there's a like demonic entity crawling up the bed toward me. And my eyes opened again <laughs> during that portion of the meditation. And I'm like, well, I hope that's not a feature. <laughs> I hope that's yeah. not an intentional thing that's going to happen every time. Is it a bug or a feature? Is it a bug or a Pennywise? <laughs> we just don't know. Yeah, that's really interesting. I also hit, like, all of a sudden, this deep sense of fear and clear mental images of that fear. I think it was just, it started with the sense of a presence. And then once you feel like there's a presence near you, your mind starts making images for that. One time when I was sitting on the couch, I got the sense that there was a presence there, like, sitting there watching me. So it was easy to be like, there's probably nothing there. But it felt like there was, so I kind of pulled out a little bit. The second time it happened, I was laying down, and I started having the sensation of there being something on my chest. I didn't feel a weight, but it felt like there was something there. When my mind was producing imagery for that, it was, you know, dark shapes, something with teeth. But I tried to stick with it, and so I started having these mental images of it started lunging for my throat. I didn't have the felt sensation, but I got a lot of images of this thing like gnashing at my throat. Just for a little bit of context, I have a lot of tension that I keep in my neck and my throat and around Mm -hmm. that, my jaw and stuff. When you dig into like mind body and how trauma is held in the body, there's interesting stuff to talk about there. So anyway, I'm trying like not to pull away from this like fear of having my throat be gnashed upon. But when I was able to just let the fear be there, it went away on its own in a way that also brought with it a sense of release, a sense of catharsis.
I think it's important to say there's stuff we can talk about pertaining to phenomena, the subjective experience itself, and then there's interpretation. Anything that isn't talking about the experience, anytime you say this is what it was, or you try to build a theory or a story around it, you're getting into interpretation. Don't get too attached to any interpretations. Interpretations need to be vetted. And that's not to say that interpretations aren't useful. I'm very skeptical about any interpretation, really. But it's really easy for me to buy into really wild phenomena. People having really wild experiences. There's a lot of weird shit your brain can do that you, an average person, just know for sure. Like when you go to bed at night and you have a dream, your brain is generating these experiences that you're having that are not going on in the world around you in the same way as waking consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. But also as someone who's had sleep paralysis, I know that it's not just a binary, there's dreaming and there's not. There's weird zones, there's weird states of mind. I know people who have tripped balls on just meditation. I've had weird experiences on meditation. It's really easy for me to believe that people are having all of these experiences. The stuff I remain very critical of, not rejecting it completely or putting a stamp of approval on, but just, I don't know this is true. This is an interesting idea. All the interpretations from the document, all the trying to relate it to how the world works. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> maybe if I wind up having these really wild experiences, maybe it'll be really easy for me to get caught up and say, yep, nope, definitely. Taurus universe. I've seen it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. In Buddhist traditions, when you have wild experiences like this, you're kind of taught... That's not important. If you want enlightenment, don't start clinging to these experiences. Just things that come up along the way. Right. They let you know that you're moving in the right direction, but aren't necessarily revealing true information about the world. It's sort of odd to have these experiences divorced from any context. Because right now it's just... Lay down and listen to this guy tell you how to breathe while the ocean waves play in the background and a strange pulsating tone happens. There's no like, and this is what it's for, you know, Right. other than at the end of CD2, it did say something like if you place the fingers of your right hand on the back of your neck and say the word one, you will be perfectly aware and alert in your waking life. And if you are trying to remember something and you place the fingers of your right hand on your forehead, you will be able to remember it with perfect recall. Yeah. Which... Those are testable claims. Yeah. It's nice to be able to poke fun at it a little bit, but at the same time, I think maybe part of the reason at least I'm doing that is because it's like you said, I haven't experienced nothing. I mean, it's easy to sort of diffuse that with humor. Yeah. What's going on here sits uncomfortably with consensus reality. It's a little out there, but at the same time, you could make connections with stuff from more mainstream traditions. There's a lot of guides to the energy body or like sensations of energy moving in your body. That's pretty ubiquitous when you start looking at any practice-oriented 
inner work, contemplative, sit and watch kind of tradition, I've felt energy moving in my body. So on the phenomenal level, that's not controversial to me. I'm not saying it's like, well, this is the same thing. All roads lead to one necessarily. Not every practice is going to bring you to the same territory, but it seems to be a guide to a shared territory. This does have the ring of being rooted in an honest phenomena. This whole thing started, as far as I understand it, with Robert Monroe having an out-of-body experience spontaneously. And that got him into it and trying to figure out practices that people can replicate this and do it themselves on command. We talked recently about watching through Twin Peaks. Got to an episode where Deputy Hawk mentions something called the Dweller on the Threshold. Mm. He says you'll encounter an entity called the Dweller on the Threshold. He's like the gatekeeper for this like realm of spiritual experience. I mean, this is obviously just in Twin Peaks. It's just a line from a TV show. But he says if you face it with imperfect courage, it will destroy your soul. So that's a little scary. But I looked up Dweller on the Threshold. Wikipedia calls it the Guardian of the Threshold. It's described by many esoteric teachers. All these links for this following quote are from occult science and theosophy sources. It says, it's a spectral image which is supposed to manifest as soon as the student of the spirit ascends upon the path into the higher worlds of knowledge. Which I gotta say that kind of tracks with the fact that it, both of the times that I've encountered this like fear moment which only actually manifested in my mind as a discernible figure, they both happened during that phase where it's like, okay, basically you've taken the first step. Like this is the very, very first thing you do to start building up to this point. And then this fear experience happened. I wonder if this is a description of that same sort of phenomenon. The whole threshold guardian thing, that's like Joseph Campbell archetypal hero's journey shit. Yeah. You cross the threshold. You confront a threshold guardian. And that's, you know, a symbol. It's not necessarily going to show up in Iron Man the same way that it's going to show up in like a romance novel or something like that. But it does seem to be part of this pattern. And if hero's journeys are a pattern within myth, and myth is roughly having to do with navigating the internal world and hero's journey is like the development of a soul or the path of knowledge and growing through life or whatever. It makes sense that we'd see something like this, this pattern repeating itself, especially in spiritual traditions. And the most on-the-nose one that I can think of is in Crowley, there's this Coronzon? Coronzon? I don't know yeah. how to pronounce it. Coronzon. Coronzon. Pardon me with the accent on the final syllable. You made it to the Coronzon. Yeah. <laughs> Wikipedia. Thelemites believe that if he has met with proper preparation, then his function is to destroy the ego, which allows the adept to move beyond the abyss of occult cosmology. Yeah. It's in Lovecraft, too. There's a lurker at the threshold. Like, you see this. There's, there's some kind of transformative darkness element here. Yeah, I mean, it could probably also be applied to, like, the boatman of the dead or gatekeeper. The fact that these dweller on the threshold figures both seem to be tied to, like, 
darkness or fear in some way. And fear at that level, it's deep brain amygdala shit. So I almost wonder if it has something to do with your actual neural physiology as you're like activating or changing the functioning of these different parts of your brain, like your sense of space can change and your sense of your body dimensions can change, how you're perceiving things changes. If you just reach a point where your amygdala is just going to start cycling through shit, like maybe the Duke Ananas is just like the point where your amygdala just starts flailing, you know what I mean? It just starts like firing off its shit to see if it can get you to stop whatever you're doing. I don't know. I mean, even in alchemy, you have to separate the shadow, you have to process the shadow, and then you have to unify everything again. And before, you know, because I have an internal church lady because I was raised in a Protestant Christian church, there's an internal church lady here all the time that I have to make peace with. She sounds a lot like one of my aunts. So, of course, now she's saying like, well, this is just an indication that you're working with demons and you're barking up the wrong tree. But actually, if you look at Christian mysticism, you go through hell in Christian mysticism. The term dark night of the soul originated with St. John of the Cross, a Christian mystic. Whatever path of enlightenment the Christian mystical traditions present, They are harrowing. You're going through some nasty shit. Experiences with fear, experiences with your physical body being tortured or manipulated, or it's not fun shit. So you can't just say just because it's dark or scary means it's like bad or demonic or something like that. This seems to be a fundamental part of this inward journey that you can undertake as a person. I have maybe like a procedural sort of practice related question. When I did this exercise yesterday, when I had that sort of fear experience, like seemed more corporeal, more personal than just the sensation of a bug crawling on my leg. When I had done it before, I had closed the door to my bedroom and I had a fan going just to sort of make white noise and drown out the outside world. I live on sort of a noisy street, as you know. But this time, yesterday when I did it, I also locked the bedroom door, sort of thinking like, conceptually, I'm like totally marking off this space, like locking out the outside world, like this is going to be my enclosed space where this is happening. During that sort of fear experience, I remember thinking, well, I locked the door. Anything that's in here either was already in here or came with me or it came of me. Mm. And I think that sort of helped me get past the fear experience. Yeah. So I wonder if having that like strong demarcation, that intentional split of like the purpose of this space is this specific purpose. I wonder if that may be helpful creating those conceptual distinctions in your mind. Yeah. It's interesting that you locked the door Obviously, you're not afraid of some physical person busting in the room. You're like, hey, what are you doing? You gateway taping? (laughs) This is CIA. Give us our tapes back. But there's like a ritual significance to it, right? Yeah. Mind sees that the door is being locked and you're bringing the intention of locking the door to it. Like there's a reason that people involved in Western mystery traditions, the occult, the Thelemites, the Golden Dawn shit, there's a lot of like forming your circle, forming your pentagram, like setting up boundaries, 
bringing your intention to setting conditions for a space. It's like whatever you are performing, mind at some level seems to take for reality. And you can influence how your mind is conceiving of reality or filtering reality by what kind of performances you're doing, what kind of acts you're performing, and how you bring your intention to those acts. And they can be helpful when you're working with altered states of consciousness and shit like that. Yeah. I like the locking the door one. And this isn't like a really out there claim to say that performing an action has an influence on your state of mind or your consciousness on some level. There's studies showing that if you feel a sense of moral impurity, you can take a bath or take a shower and you feel better afterwards as if the water has been washing it off. Like you can act to influence your state of consciousness. You're acting to perform a belief and whatever belief you're internalizing, at least temporarily, which is, I think, another reason for creating those boundaries is you're also keeping what happens inside inside in a particular space. By changing those beliefs or changing how you're filtering reality according to those beliefs or according to those reality models, you change your experience. Yeah, I'm glad I'm doing it. Like when you first shared this with me, when you first told me about it, I was on the couch with Brian. He asked what you were talking to me about. And I told him like this declassified CIA thing (laughs) for like expanding your consciousness and learning how to like astral project and talk to entities and whatever. He's like, did you say CIA? (laughs) Like, don't get too wrapped up in this. It's got to be some like subliminal mind control. Have you ever heard of MK Ultra? I was like, oh, when Jeremy and I lived together, he named our uh, (laughs) Wi-Fi network MK Ultra. (laughs) Like, yes, I'm I'm familiar. It's not totally unfamiliar territory. (laughs) No. Yeah, it's it's been a cool little experience, and I feel like I keep fixating on the fear sort of experience. It was really brief, and it wasn't like the defining characteristic of what I experienced yesterday. But the fact that I had that experience where I've always had really vivid and strong averse reactions to sleep paralysis, I had it for years and years of my life. And the fact that something sort of similar happened, and I was able to be like, all right, it's not some outside thing. It was in here with me or it comes from me. I'm going to move past it. At least for me, the experience of having that moment of fear and being able to just say, yes, I've experienced it. Now what? Yeah. It was pretty big. And I was able to then experience something that I found really cool. If, if that's only step one, then I'm excited to see what's next. Whatever it may end up being, if it just ends up being a cool way to relax, fine. But I'm definitely going to keep going and see what happens. Yeah. And if not, maybe we'll see some witches. Uh, that's th- I've heard somebody who had lots of sleep paralysis and nightmares and then got really into lucid dreaming techniques because they had the, like a recurring presence of these three terrifying witches that were chasing them. And they wanted to learn how to lucid dream so they could confront the witches instead of just running away. I wonder if there's some significance to this image of witches. Yeah, I listened to an episode of Nocturne where someone was talking about the witches in sleep paralysis. I think I shared that with you. Yeah, that may be where we might be talking about. Yeah, it was years ago that I listened to this. Yeah, it is interesting what kind of images or archetypes seem to be recurring under different conditions. Like one dude 
talking about gateway experiences, talked about seeing giant mantises. Shinzen Young, who's a really big Western Dharma teacher, he talked about seeing giant insects and just having to let go of seeing giant insects. There was a Zen meditator, I believe, on an episode of Weird Studies. Love the Weird Studies podcast. We talked about seeing giant praying mantises. That's something that seems to be recurring. But witches too. Like witches is something that I guess shouldn't be too surprising because in a lot of cultures, there are witches, like folklore about witches sometimes being described as almost having access to altered states of consciousness or being perceived in altered states of consciousness. I have had really resonant dream experiences with specifically a group of three witches that I've seen on multiple occasions. It does seem like a pattern. I don't know why witches specifically. I don't think I'm being targeted by witches. They don't seem to be having nefarious purposes toward me at this point. <laughs> but it's like, why if you smoke DMT, do you see Mayan architecture and weird geometric gestures? Like, why do certain images seem to come up with certain areas of practice or different states of consciousness? What is it about those images that is generated by activating these other states of consciousness? It's fascinating. Let's talk about that missing gateway page since we actually found it. So partially our like filling the blank about why this page was left out just because we were extrapolating from the context that they were going to talk more about the religious significance of the document. That's partially true, but it's only like a third of the page. I feel like the other two subsections, 35 and 36 on the page, they're also interesting. Yeah, I think most likely this was just a, a copying error. I don't know if they left this out intentionally. It's not like on the nose enough that like, oh, this is what they didn't want to share that I, I don't really feel strongly that it was excluded intentionally. But who knows? Yeah, there are corrupted versions of the gateway tapes that are floating around that are kind of mysterious. I guess there's some yeah. like weird noises that were added to it. I wonder why and for what purpose. Or if it's just, I don't know, like someone decided to make an alternate reality game or something out of this. Or if it's just some weird fluke. I don't know. But that would be a really interesting way of doing an alternate reality game is finding something that's inherently kind of mysterious like this and adding your breadcrumbs to that. And maybe this is just my paranoia showing, but after having finished that QAnon documentary, I'm thinking like, oh, it'd also be really easy for somebody to take something like this and yeah, maybe make like a, a game, like something just for fun, a little twist on the mysteriousness of it, but it would also be easy for them to take it and twist it to a nefarious end. Yeah, that's true. I'm not as worried about like subliminal messages or anything like that, because I don't think there's any evidence that that kind of thing is actually effective. I, I don't know. Maybe people are just bored. I absolutely think that this is my own paranoia bleeding through because I watched that documentary. Well, I mean, 
The CIA is definitely super good at obfuscating with their like disinformation dissemination and controlled disclosure. It's right, really right. difficult to read anything into anything the CIA says or discloses. <laughs> cool organization. Yeah, good job, boys. The Ministry of Falsehood and Extrajudicial Murder. Yeah, exactly. Using the drug trade in order to finance off-the-books operations. We're touching on a different episode's topic. <laughs> it's hard not to bring them up because this is a CIA document, but it would be so right. easy to just spend hours talking about what the fuck is up with the CIA. But yeah, like it looks like a third of subsection 34 is just trying to reconcile the findings of this document with the Christian cosmology. Yeah, that's true. It's very cosmological. Like it kind of elucidates the author's conception of how the cosmology is expressing itself or being known in these experiences. It's trying to square it with Christian language, but it is kind of a clear expression of how this author is conceiving of this interaction. Yeah. So on page 24, subsection 34... Belief system considerations starts off with a couple of quotations that sort of link the universal hologram model to a few cosmological models in a couple of different Eastern schools of thought and starts trying to reconcile it with existing religious frameworks before reaching the point where it says the description of energy totally at rest in infinity fits the Christian metaphysical concept of the father while the infinite self-consciousness resident in that energy providing the motive force of will to bring a portion of that energy into motion to create reality corresponds with the sun. This is so because in order to attain self-consciousness, the consciousness of the absolute must project a hologram of itself and then perceive it. That hologram is a mirror image of the absolute in infinity, still exists outside time and space, but is one step removed from the absolute and is the actual agent of all creation, all reality. And the eternal thought or concept of self, which results from this self-consciousness, serves the absolute as the model around which the evolution of time-space revolves to ultimately attain a reflection of and union with him. That thought model, which perfectly reflects the essence or spirit of the absolute, fits the Christian metaphysical description of the Holy Spirit. Finally, our description of the universal hologram, the Taurus of creation and evolution, is neither new nor original. Its use as the figure of the universe, of creation developing in evolution, is found in various stylized representations in virtually every religious system of antiquity, whether of Eastern or Western derivation. Whether it's the stylized labyrinth once popular in the Hellenic world, the spiralized version of the Hebrew tree of life or its Hindu counterpart, or the Chinese spiral through the fourfold powers, the ultimate meaning is the same. Mystics the world over, it seems, have perceived the universal hologram in the same spiral form and have incorporated that intuitive knowledge in their religious writings from antiquity to the present. He's not wrong. Like, there's a lot of connections you can make here. I think using the terms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not super useful for describing these concepts because they are so laden with other meaning. I mean, it makes sense if he's trying to explain this to Christian mystics using their vocabulary. 
But even just trying to use this language to explain to Christians, they're probably going to be tripped up by this language more than anything else. I agree. And and I don't think extremely devout Christians are exactly the target audience for this. But I mean, from my time in Christianity, I never thought about Jesus the Son as the projection onto created reality, which God used in order to be able to perceive himself. It was God's up there, Jesus is doing his thing, and the Holy Spirit's like a ghost that flies around doing miracles or something. I don't know. It was <laughs> it was really simplistic, really like cartoonish. And I agree, like there's uh, usefulness for it in terms of bringing it into a realm of familiarity for certain people, but I don't know that it's extremely helpful for average everyday lay Christian person who just goes to church on Sunday, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I guess it's useful to keep in mind that this wasn't written for a mass audience. This was written for right, right. the army to explain what this weird shit they were doing in the CIA. I guess maybe I could see this and respect this as a way of avoiding unnecessary pushback. There's kind of limits of what is an acceptable territory to move in. What the writer is doing is sort of similar to what mystics have done, which is to say something heretical in the language of the dominant religion, because you have to. Like, I don't think the Christian mystical language is totally invalid. Definitely not for a contemporary lay Christian audience, but the author of the Gospel According to John, or what's now called the Gospel According to John, clearly had a mystical understanding. The Gospel of John is rife with mystical language. The way he's talking about the sun here, I think, lines up pretty clearly with the concept of the Logos in John, as well as in the Gnostic Christianities that existed at the time John was written. So the line, in order to attain self-consciousness, the consciousness of the absolute must project a hologram of itself and then perceive it. The hologram is a mirror image of the absolute in infinity, still exists outside space and time, but is one step removed from the absolute and is the actual agent of all creation, all reality. This also reminds me of the mystical interpretation of the image of God moving over the waters in Genesis. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of those stories from a lot of polytheistic systems where it talks about this being, this God was the first being. But it's also the son of this being. Like Vishnu was the first one who ever existed or whatever. Where did he come from? Oh, there was an egg floating on an ocean of milk. Where did that come from? Who knows? There's always some sort of larger, more transcendent something that already exists that then brings some sort of agent into being that then goes on to create the world or in some cases die and then the world springs from its body or, you know, various different stories. It sort of reminds me of that kind of model. Yeah, there is definitely a recurring motif of the creator God being in some ways distinct from the absolute. And in some ways, there's like a shared identity and a distinction between the two, which is interesting. Yeah, we could probably spend a whole episode unpacking that bit. The version of this that I was taught in church is very it's very literal god who is a dude on a throne who's just kind of sitting there yeah who is like one in three people that you can see yeah (laughs) it's just like a dude on a throne a slightly smaller guy right next to him who just looks like a younger him and then a 
glowing cloud just drifting around and they're <laughs> all three just kind of like smiling and nodding like this is the life there is definitely a more mystical way of of interpreting the passages that that interpretation comes from yeah and i think that like all these traditions have an esoteric and an exoteric set of readings the initiates get the inner readings and everyone else who's kind of just there to like, you know, they're living their lives, they're lay people, they're doing their jobs, and they just want like a cool sing-along time to go to where they can talk about some stories that help them make meaning of their lives. That's cool too. But I think what really made Christianity go off the rails is just how deeply opposed to the inner traditions, the bulk of it is. I mean, there are, there's like Ignatian spirituality in Catholicism that is more or less accepted and or tolerated, depending on who you <laughs> ask. Protestantism, there's the charismatics, which is almost this cartoon version of mysticism. It's like a display of being moved by the spirit or whatever, which also kind of makes sense why the Holy Spirit is not like, you know, you have an idea of what white Jesus looks like and you have an idea of what God looks like in our culture. But like, what the fuck is the Holy Spirit? It's like a dove. Right. It can't possibly be a woman. Right. So it's got to <laughs> be like a bird or a cloud or something. Yeah. But it's like, it's the most mysterious one, but it's the phenomenal one. It's the one that you encounter directly. Right. This is the part of God that actually talks to us and helps us and does things. But it's, it's always kind of just... Off to the side, it never receives as much attention. I find that kind of strange. Yeah, it is weird. I mean, like it's interesting which parts of Paul's writings the church tends to pay attention to. I'll go ahead and start with 35. Left brain limitations. 20th century physics would seem to be revisiting insights belonging to mankind as far back as written records can take us. The only difference is that 20th century physics is using a left-brain, linear, quantitative style of reasoning to approach the same knowledge which the mystics of old apparently acquired in a holistic, intuitive, right-brain style. This is so because the self-imposed limitations to balanced perception and objective logic which our culture and personal psychological subjectivity imposes when we use the strictly left-brain thinking style could be offset by the holistic form of perception associated with altered states of consciousness. To the extent that we come to perceive ourselves fully in the context of that portion of the universal hologram which is the reflection of ourselves, to that extent we release ourselves from the prison of subjectivity. This is not quite as cosmological. The whole left-brain-right-brain dichotomy, while not necessarily true in a literal sense, I feel like I see what they're getting at here. There is a holistic, more direct mode of perceiving, which is sort of separate from this analytical, linguistic, linear mode that we're sort of stuck in. And it's not necessarily that one's good and one's bad, but maybe the human being was more used to being able to fluidly switch between those, but now we're kind of stuck in one over the other. Yeah, I'm, I would agree with that. I'm interested in this part. The objective logic which our cultural and personal psychological subjectivity imposes when we use strictly left-brain thinking styles. I think there's definitely value placed on that logic, facts, scientific method, way of thinking in our culture to the extent that 
the more intuitive or emotional, personal side of perception is less valued than that more logical mindset. If these exercises can sort of help bring that sort of right brain mode of thinking more into the mainstream to show that there's value to that and that it can also lead to realizations, I'd be interested to explore it further to get to that point. People are like, you need to be more logical and less ruled by your emotions. I can be like, no, no, no. I had an out-of-body experience and talked to a giant space lobster. So, I also think it's really telling that the people who are most neurotic about prioritizing logic, facts, and reason or whatever above everything else. Yeah, logic is great. Rational thinking is great. But the people who won't stop talking about it always seem to me to be clearly driven by some emotive force, trauma, or some psychological energy. It's like a blind spot for them. Like the Ben Shapiro's of the world, they're like facts and reason, but like Ben Shapiro will go out of his way to bitch about like pansexuals. There was that video circulating. He's like, pansexuals are weird. Well, like how is that facts or reason or logic or anything like that? It's not. You'll find ways of rationalizing whatever your take is on any given issue because it makes you uncomfortable. You can't just do one or the other. You can't just have your rational brain because you're going to ironically behave irrationally because you won't be in touch with your own self, your own psyche at a deeper level. I think people like Ben Shapiro, they've built themselves up to be these like paragons of logic. Therefore, all other schools of thought, systems of belief, ideas, opinions must be illogical and counterfactual because your frame of mind is the pure logical fact, and there's no room for anything else. Right. And I don't think there's a whole lot of value to that kind of thinking. I wasn't expecting this to come up, but I saved this article from Medical News Today. The headline is, Brain Can't Empathize and Analyze at Same Time. Research is at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio reported in the journal NeuroImage, humans have a built-in neural constraint that stops us thinking empathetically and analytically at the same time. I don't know if this is really the same thing, but it's difficult not to make a connection there. Like, we've all met people who are being very analytical, but not being very empathetic. I've certainly been someone who has been very analytical, but not empathetic. Whatever you're doing with your brain, the more you do it, the easier it's going to be to do that. The more your tendency to do that will increase. It's why practice makes us better at things. So it's like the more time you spend in that analytical mode, the less empathetic you're likely to be. Yeah, so I think that if that is a scientific fact, our culture that we're embedded in every waking moment is so skewed toward left brain sort of thinking, then that unfortunately puts it on us in our free time to find ways to sort of foster the more empathetic, intuitive, right brain mode of thinking. So if gateway is a way to develop that right brain in order to sort of balance out the left, I think there's value to that. I feel like I keep (laughs) coming back to whether something is valuable or useful (laughs) or not. I don't know that that's what I want to be doing on this podcast. My logic dictates this is good. I think you're actually pointing to something that is valuable. I'll say it. What we're doing here, we're not really doing literary analysis. We're not doing like, how do you view this through Freudian psychoanalysis? So we can write a paper about that. This is personal for us. It's 
only natural that we would be perceiving whether it has value to us. When we're looking at something like this, we're not saying this is inherently valuable or this is inherently worthless. So maybe just with the caveat that we are speaking in relative and in personal terms, we are evaluating in terms of use to us. That's true. We're not trying to be like an authoritative voice. Yeah. We're talking about these things in relationship to our own experiences. So, yeah. And I think that that's kind of the difference between approaching these things academically versus a sort of spiritual mode of approach to this kind of thing is inherently personal and inherently grounded in how we're connecting it to our own experiences. I think it's groovy. Listeners, if you don't have the same experiences, that's cool. Start your own podcast. I'll listen to it. Maybe if it's good, send me a link. <laughs> no promises. Yeah, no promises. I saw some comments saying that, well, maybe this isn't a real missing page because of the typo. Like, I think the army can make typos. I'm certain that there's at least one other typo somewhere in this 30 odd page document. But the thing that sort of makes me wonder if it's the genuine page 25 is the fact that the staple marks up in the upper left corner don't match with the staple marks in the rest of the PDF. But there's nothing saying that they couldn't have printed this out twice and stapled it in a different way and then scanned it at a different time. Also, the person who said that they got this said they got it directly from the Monroe Institute. They just like asked for it. They're like, hey, this CIA document's missing a page. Can I have it? So it's very within the realm of possibility that they just scanned a different document in order to send it. Yeah. Though it does have down in the bottom left corner, there is what looks like another hole from some other kind of piercing or perforation that does match with the rest of the document. So. It also looks like there's multiple staple marks. So this may be a fucked up old piece of paper. It does seem strange to me. I don't know. The formatting seems slightly different. They seem to have three spaces after a period throughout this document. Just That's the just spiritual grammar. Yeah. I mean, it's tough to say because I don't think it would be so unlikely that this is a print off from another computer or something. It doesn't seem like it was included in whatever document was originally scanned by the CIA for their archives. Like, either way, this is something that was probably scanned at a different time, probably from a different source. But yeah, we don't have enough information to say whether it's a forgery or not. Yeah, absolutely. And regardless of whether this is or isn't the uh, legitimate page 25, which isn't really something we can know right now. We can still discuss what's written here and talk about our thoughts and feelings about it. I don't know. It might not be real. It might be real. Who can say? Only the Oracle knows such things. (laughs) It would be really interesting if someone could get some confirmation, see if we can find any corroborating evidence. A woman tweeted that she was the one who got it. We could certainly look into it and see. I don't know. I'm sure we'll find out in time whether this is legit or not. We'll listen to a better podcast and they'll have this all (laughs) laid out for us. Yeah. I don't know that this stuff is going to make you time travel or or anything like that, but it does seem to be able to produce some result. By doing certain actions, certain results did follow. What I am able to personally attest to is very limited. I would say the results are encouraging. 
and based on just taking a comparative approach to these texts and seeing how they line up with or diverge from other texts, this seems like a valid set of practices for having really trippy experiences. Yeah. If you're down with this, there's a fuck ton more interesting practices and techniques that we can experiment with and talk about. Yeah. No, I would totally be down to look into some other practices, compare results, if any, comparing like our own experiences with each other and with what we've experienced from other methods. Yeah. The gateway tapes is like our gateway into a weirder podcast. (laughs) It's like you said in the Discord message, like the name of it just gateway and we've been talking about like secret doors and Tory gates and stuff leading to the other world. Yeah. And I don't remember where I read this, but I think somewhere Robert Monroe says that the gateway name comes from these practices are an introduction, an opening, like a, a gateway into other realms of perception, other territories of human experience, something like that. Yeah, and that, that was part of why I was so excited about encountering this stuff is because the mysterious doorway image was so resonant. And for some reason, it was something we were drawn to with this specifically, this podcast specifically. It felt like a fruition of setting that intention. Yeah. The filter that we set by talking about it and exploring that on this podcast, paying off by encountering or being open to this gateway thing. I'm interested in seeing what happens next. Yes. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like that's all that we can really say at this point. I'm, I'm really curious to see where that leads. It's exciting. Yeah. Those have been our secrets. You are now an insider. Welcome to the Secret Mystery Club. Next time on Secret Mystery Club. Neverending Story incorporates the strong element of metafiction. That is surprisingly deep for what appears at first glance to be a kid's story. Everything is saturated with significance. There's philosophy in it. It's didactic in a spiritual sense. I can't help but see it as a metaphor for spiritual practice that makes complete sense. Enda grew up during World War II era, Rise of Nazis. He was influenced by Rudolf Steiner, Rosicrucian Thought, Aleister Crowley, Swedenborg. This is the story of how this fantasy wish fulfillment can also be a path of self-discovery and healing. I think there's almost definitely an element of the author incorporating his own experiences into the book. I am advocating for my own right to work with my own consciousness. The thing that I fucking am as far as I know. And it's so threatening to people. The 80s movie didn't really do it justice at all. Well, the author certainly didn't think so. Music this episode has been Dreamscape by Density and Time. For R&S by Density and Time. Praying Space by PC3. And Is There Life in Here by Jim Rooster. Links, licensing, and other details in the show notes. Visit secretmysterypod.com for more secret mysteries. Thank you for listening. Until next time keep it spooky initiates.